Hello again. It's been a long time since we opened up the Midnight Library. Not much changes around here. A bit more dust on the gramophone. <sighs> and on the books. But we'll soon have the fire roaring again. It's always cold and stormy around here somehow. On these shelves, I have records of every single haunting, apparition, and alleged paranormal event in Irish history. And tonight, I'm going to share with you a compendium of stories, tales and legends, mostly from the archives of Dublin newspapers of the 1960s. Now these stories were, for the most part, submitted by readers, and as to their veracity, or otherwise, well you can make your own mind up. This first story will probably sound quite familiar. You may even think you've heard it before. It goes like this. One afternoon, our correspondent, a certain J.R.G. from Rialto, is heading back into work after lunch. As he steps off the bus in central Dublin, a sudden gust of wind whips up along the street and blows a piece of grit into his eye. Fumbling half-blind along the street, he makes for a tailor's shop, where he knows there's a large mirror in the window. He whips out his handkerchief, and with the help of the mirror, he fishes the dirt out of his eye. But he also catches sight of something else in the mirror. He sees, clearly and distinctly, behind him in the street, the face of an old friend, a close friend, a friend who departed for England just six months earlier. Our correspondent spins around, delighted that this unexpected reunion, only to find no one there. The street is almost deserted, so he strolls up and down for a couple of minutes, peering into doorways just in case his friend is playing a trick on him, a game of hide-and-seek. But there's still no sign. Eventually, puzzled and disappointed, he gives up and heads back to work. But that faint sense of unease doesn't leave him, and that evening on the bus, he discovers why. He settles down into his seat and opens up his evening newspaper on his lap. And as he does so, 
His eye alights upon a small headline halfway down the page. Four die in factory explosion. You see, his friend couldn't have been in Dublin that afternoon. At least, not in body. Because his name was there in black and white. One of four victims of an explosion at a munitions factory in Birmingham. So, did that sound familiar? Stories of people appearing to loved ones at the moment of their death or soon after are extremely common. In fact, they're probably one of the most common types of ghost story you'll hear. This one fits the template to a T. The sudden appearance, the sudden disappearance, the baffled friend, the terrible news from overseas. It even has some rather nice touches of irrelevant detail to sell the story. The bus, the grit in the eye, the tailor's window. So, perfectly acceptable, perfectly adequate, perfectly standard tale of death foretold. Sold as a true story to the Evening Herald for half a guinea in 1968, and a fair exchange at that. Well, maybe. But dig a little further into the newspaper archives, as I did. And you might have cause to wonder. Remember that headline J.R.G. saw in the newspaper? Four die in factory explosion. Straight to the point moves the story along, sets us up for the punchline. The kind of headline you'd make up if you were making up the story. Except that, well, that exact headline, word for word, does indeed appear in the Examiner newspaper of March 20th. 1945. And the story goes like this. The British Ministry of Supply announced that, as the result of an explosion at an ordnance factory in the Midlands yesterday, four men were killed. The headline, the death toll, and the location were just as J.R.G. remember them over 20 years later. And among the names of the dead is that of a certain Arthur James Buckley. Rather an Irish sounding name, wouldn't you say? And according to my own inquiries, the only one of the dead not to be buried in England. So, was J.R.G. spinning a yarn? to get his initials in print and half a guinea in the post? Or was he remembering a genuine and chilling revelation of a violent death 250 miles away? That might be one for you to ponder the next time you catch a fleeting glimpse of a familiar face. In the meantime, I'll find us another story from the archives.
this one dates from 1967 and it's an experience recounted by an amateur photographer from Rathgar. If you're not familiar with Rathgar, well, I'll let that great Dublin comedian of days past, Jimmy O'D, set the scene. Oh, thank heaven we are living in Rathgar. Oh, the solid, quiet refinement of Rathgar, where we have our evening dinners, where we never hear of shinners, and even those who can't afford it have a car. There are some quite decent suburbs, I am sure. Oh, Rath Mines is not so bad or Terenure. Oh, we've heard of spots like Inchicore, but really don't know where they are. For oh, thank heaven we are living in Rathgar. But this story doesn't begin in the solid, quiet refinement of Rathgar but a long way north, north of the border, in fact. Our Rathgar correspondent tells us of a summer's evening many years earlier, when he ventured out with his camera to photograph the remains of a ruined church just outside his native village. To the photographer's eye, it was a promising subject, covered in ivy, its roof long caved in, surrounded by yew trees and crumbling headstones, and our correspondent snapped three separate photographs before moving on. It was some days later when he descended into his dark room to develop and print the pictures. As he lifted the prints gingerly, out of the solution. What he saw astonished him. It was the same church in the photographs, the same church that he had photographed. Of, of that there could be no doubt. But there was no ivy creeping up the walls. The belfry stood tall and proud, and in place of the mighty yew trees were thin saplings dotted around the gravestones, the intact gravestones. Although he could scarcely believe it, what he was holding in his hands was undoubtedly an image of the same church many, many years before it fell into ruin. And that must have been a long time ago indeed. Our correspondent in 1968 gives us one clue as to the location. He says that while there are no local legends associated with the church, it is known that it was built for Sir John Dunbar in the 17th century. That can only place the church in County Fermanagh and it can only be the old ruined church at Derry Gonnelly, built for the Scottish planter Sir John Dunbar in 1627. So old, so forgotten, that no one can even remember its name if it ever had one. But it still stands, just about, back from the road 
hidden by trees, the Dunbar crest still visible over the door. How could a church that must have been in ruins by the 19th century appear intact and unblemished in a photograph taken in 1968? Well, maybe we'll never know. But if any brave soul wants to trudge beyond the village of Derry Gonnelly, under the dark path formed by the trees, to the ruins and gravestones that lie within the walled garden, be my guest, and do please report back. Time for another tale. Another tale from the newspapers of the 1960s. This one. I hope you've never had occasion to spend too much time in hospital, but if you have, or if you've ever worked in one, you may well have heard whispers of certain rooms, certain wards, certain corridors, where even the most battle-hardened staff quicken their step on those long and lonely night shifts. The events I'm going to tell you about now took place in one of the most renowned hospitals in Ireland. and They occurred in the midst of a major flu epidemic perhaps the so-called Asian flu of 1957 to 58. Now, with flu sweeping through the wards, staff began to drop off the rosters like flies. The night service switchboard operator was one of the first to fall sick. Since no replacement could be found for the sick switchboard operator. The job fell to the subject of our story, a young girl from County Carlow, a newly qualified nurse, Nurse Claire. On her first night running the board alongside her regular duties, our young nurse heard the harsh buzz of a call coming into the switchboard shortly after midnight. But by the time she reached the board, the buzzing had stopped, and none of the lights were lit up. When it happened again at 12.15 on the second night, and again on the third, Nurse Claire brought it up with one of her more senior colleagues. But while the late night phone call was familiar to the nurses, no one had ever got to the bottom of it. That was until the switchboard operator came back off sick leave. Come along tonight, he said, and you'll see exactly how it happens. So, that night, Nurse Claire and two of her colleagues ventured down to the switchboard station 
shortly before midnight. Johnny, the switchboard operator, regales the nurses with jokes and stories to settle their nerves, until finally the clock ticked around to 15 minutes past 12. And yet again, there it was. And as the switchboard buzzed, Johnny invited the nurses to look down at the panel of lights. Not one of them was lit up. Someone was calling all right, but the call was coming from nowhere. And it was then that Johnny reminded them of an incident at the hospital almost ten years earlier, before Nurse Claire's time, but familiar to everyone who worked there. It seems a, a young nurse in the radiography department had finished her shift and headed out to a show in town, only to realise she left her handbag behind. Returning after midnight to retrieve it, she got the key to the x-ray department and made her way cautiously down the darkened stairs. Not cautiously enough. Her heels caught on the rubber fringe of the hospital staircase and she crashed violently onto the landing. It was the next morning when they found her, lifeless on the landing, her neck snapped by the fall. Now, said Johnny, when these calls started, where do you think they came from? The radiography department. So they began to disconnect their phone at night, but the calls kept coming. That switchboard is long gone, long obsolete, but whatever was at the other end is doubtless still out there, still looking for a connection. And if the phone rings at a quarter past midnight, and you choose to pick it up, well, the voice on the other end might just... on from the sickly strip lights of the hospital to the verdant green fields for which Ireland is famous all over the world. When you think of Ireland, of rural Ireland, you see them at once in your mind's eye. That 
patchwork of fields rolling across the countryside in every conceivable shade of green. But some fields are not nearly as inviting as they may seem. The story of the hungry grass is well known across the country. Patches of grass imprinted with the gnawing hunger of the famine, where healthy, well-fed men and women can starve to death in moments if they don't take the precaution of carrying a piece of bread. But beyond the hungry grass, there are other stories that hint at supernatural forces lurking behind the stone walls and hedgerows of rural Ireland. Stories of fields with a strange, otherworldly power to take people captive and hold them against their will. This is one such story, typical of dozens fans throughout the country. It comes from 1964, from a Wicklow letter writer, remembering his childhood on a farm in County Roscommon, a farm his family had occupied for centuries. The farm was located near a ring fort. A ring fort, or Ra, is a circular mound of earth built up in the Bronze Age, typically. You can find them all over Ireland. Now, we've known for centuries what ring forts were actually used for, mostly for keeping livestock in and predators out. But over the ages, a powerful supernatural mythology has built up around them. But there was nothing mythological about this farm in County Roscommon. Its effects on the unwary rambler were very real. Our correspondent tells us that the field was only ever referred to in his family as, well, the field. Growing up, he'd always wondered what his father was doing when he'd stand at the back door, straining his ears in the direction of the field, before venturing out into the night. The truth was kept from him until he was older, when one night his father solemnly said, The field has got someone again, before striding out cautiously, lantern in hand. You see, the field had an unusual and, for the victim, terrifying quality. It wasn't particularly large. It was a standard, flat, rectangular farmer's field. And yet, set foot in it after dark, and it could suddenly become as baffling as the most devilish maze ever devised. It became, quite simply, impossible to escape from. And once the field had got you, it didn't let go. Try as you might, 
scramble as you might, retrace your steps this way and that, there was no way out. Fumble in the dark for the hedgerow, follow it as far as you liked, no exit would appear. As you staggered around in the dark, in a world that no longer made sense, you'd inevitably begin to wonder. What if no one comes? What if the dawn never breaks? What if I never leave this field again? Your only chance of escape was to cry out and hope that the local farmer heard you and will guide you out, dumbfounded and bedraggled. That's how our Roscommon farmer found Willie, the local poacher. Exhausted, confounded, but stone-cold sober, and slumped in the middle of the field, having given up on finding any way out. Curiously, he was sitting with his jacket on, inside out, an old trick passed through generations. It has no supernatural significance, rather the concentration required to turn your jacket inside out is supposed to snap you back to reality. With the farmer and his lantern leading the way, the poacher finally escaped the field and pledged never to poach those lands again. And for all we know, he stuck to his promise. After all, what rabbit or pheasant is worth such a horrifying glimpse of a very Irish form of hell? Now let's go back to Dublin. Back in time for a moment. Just before the summer solstice in the year 1584, a grotesque spectacle was played out right in the heart of the city. This was a time of severe repression in Ireland amid the Second Desmond Rebellion, when Catholic clergy were at great risk from the forces of the Crown. Dermot O'Hurley newly appointed Archbishop of Cashel, had been sneaked into Ireland from the continent. Before he could reach his flock, however, he was arrested, taken to Dublin, tortured horrendously in Dublin Castle, and sentenced to death for treason, for refusing to convert to the state religion. On the gallows at Hoggins Green, Today's College Green, right outside Trinity. O'Hurley begged the people of Ireland to bear witness on the day of judgment of my innocent death. He was hanged as a traitor to the crown and the faith and buried by his executioners without ceremony in a ditch beneath the gallows. 
But later that night, a few of the Archbishop's more courageous friends crept onto Hoggan Green under cover of darkness, dug up his body, and reburied it in a coffin in the churchyard of St. Kevin's on Camden Row, already a ruin by 1584. However, the knowledge was preserved. Over the following centuries, the secret grave of the martyred archbishop became a site of pilgrimage for thousands upon thousands of Irish Catholics. But while for many, the old churchyard was a space for reflection and prayer, for some, it was a place of terror because on cloudy, stormy nights amid the ivy-covered ruins of St. Kevin's, some saw a horrifying vision of the martyred archbishop himself. Dressed in bloody vestments, standing at a phantom altar which emerged from his burial place, the scene illuminated by pale, unearthly lights, casting a white glow on the archbishop's bloodied face. Those who were brave enough to get close enough could hear the archbishop celebrating Mass in a pained, echoless voice. These visions were witnessed into the 20th century, but the precise location of the Archbishop's grave has since been lost. But there was a report less than ten years ago of Gardy being called to the scene of what was thought to be after hours underage drinking in St. Kevin's Park. When they got there, they found no underage drinking and no underage drinkers. But they did report the sound of what they took to be a speaker of some kind, broadcasting in a foreign or garbled language. No speaker was found, but while they couldn't swear to it, the older of the two guards thought the language sounded a lot like Latin. It's time to lock up the library once again, but as we do so, I'm going to tell you one last tale of Ireland's haunted past. Now, I do hope you'll walk some of the way with me. This one comes from a bus driver who drove the old number 25 Lucan bus route 
in the mid-1960s. One warm summer's night, he was returning to the depot after his last run of the night, which had been slightly delayed by a traffic accident along the route. He came back into the city, reached the city centre, and pulled onto the quays. It was a route he'd travelled a thousand times before. Now, in those days, city centre traffic was much lighter than it is today, particularly after dark, and the number 25 had the road almost to itself. A light summer fog had settled on the city, and the driver sat in his cabin, chatting amiably to the conductor, who, as usual, was sneaking a quick cigarette out the half-opened window. The conversation passed the time as the bus rattled along the streets on its way to its resting place for the night in the depot. But just before Mellows Bridge there was the faint glow of points of light piercing the fog along the river and also a strange rhythmic sound that could just be heard over the noise of the engine. By this point the conductor had become sufficiently confused and disturbed that he wanted to get a better view from the upper deck so he hopped up the staircase to see out over the key wall. A few moments later the conductor came down the staircase and calmly told the driver to pull the bus over by the old Sligo Hotel and to step out and see what he had just seen and the two men stepped out together into the cool foggy night. The conductor clutching the driver's sleeve as they walked to the key wall and gazed down at the river. And this is what they saw. They saw the river at its lowest ebb, just a gurgle of water on a bed of mud. And wading through the mud, they saw row after row after row of barefoot men and women, clothed in tattered white garments. These men and women were making their way slowly along the riverbed, their bare feet sinking into the mud. Here and there some of them carried torches of flaming reeds or rushes. And in the flickering glow, 
the bus men made out the weathered features of men and women of all ages. Their faces carried no expression, but their lips were moving softly in a wave of gentle chanting that seemed to ripple down the line, up and down the river. And at the head of this procession were two tall men carrying a carved wooden figure high above their heads. And so on the procession went with grim purpose, row after row of the gaunt white figures passing beneath the two busmen, pallid white shapes in the night. As the procession passed directly below, the watching conductor summoned up the courage to do something that he would regret for the rest of his life. He called down at the figures from the quayside. And to his dying day, the driver said, he would remember the look of sheer terror in the faces that suddenly gazed up. Dozens of them, a river of pale, thin, terrified faces staring up at the busman in abject horror as their bare feet stuck in the mud as they were seemingly too terrified even to scream. Neither man could say exactly how the scene faded away or how the gentle flow of the river replaced the mud of the riverbed once again. But it happened in an instant. Moments later, the two men were back on the bus together, heading in utter silence to the depot, neither able to discuss or even mention what they'd just seen or were convinced they'd just seen. conductor passed away in the early 1980s. The driver's account dates from the turn of the millennium and while it can't be corroborated he did secure with the help of the National Busman's Union a transfer to another route one which didn't pass along the Dublin Keys on those still summer nights when the fog rolls in fast. And this, my friends, is where I leave you. Good night.